I want to look at 6 and 7, but I want to really focus on chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So let's just read through this, chapter 6 and 7, and then we'll come back to the focal, the focal passage. And I'll sort of begin the sermon in that way. So let's read through the passage, and we'll, then we'll begin the sermon. Uh, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days... He will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains water the earth. But what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I, the Lord says, desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, this may be referring to Adam and Eve, or it may be referring to a place called Adam, but at Adam or like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. This would be the covenant made through Moses. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers that's east of the Jordan. Tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. So there must have been something the priests were doing. It says they banded together and the priests murder on the way to Shechem. And they commit villainy there in Shechem is north of Jerusalem it's the first capital that Israel had in the house of Israel verse 10 says I have seen a horrible thing Ephraim's whoredom is there Israel is defiled for you O Judah a harvest is appointed and when you read that where it talks about a harvest being appointed you might say well that's good they're going to have a harvest but uh, that's not what it means Uh, What he's saying is that one day, Judah, you're also going to reap what you have sown in sin. And so that that second part of verse 11, which we might call 11b, the fortunes of my people. Now look over at chapter 7. And and that's a bad chapter break. That verse ought to be at the very beginning of chapter 7. So we read it this way. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel... The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. God's saying, when I want to heal you, when I want to do as I desire, which is to do something good for you, the iniquity of Ephraim, that's Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And the evil deeds of Samaria, Samaritans, that's also representing Israel, the northern kingdom, says, I I want to help you guys, but your evil deeds are before me. You will not do right you will continually do evil and so thus you will not turn to me and learn so you just keep sinning and I can't do as I desire to bless you he says for they deal falsely and this is speaking of political alliances it says they deal falsely the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside and so their their nation is doing all of this evil and, and the Lord says in verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. All the evidence against the northern kingdom is stacking up. God's people are unfaithful. The evidence is stacking up. 
Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. And by their evil, he says in verse 3, they make the king glad. The king should be appalled by the way his people are behaving. But when his people behave treacherously, the king is made glad. And the princes, by their treachery, the princes are happy too as they do evil. And then in verses 4 through 7, the writer moves into a a metaphor about an oven, if you'll notice in these verses, the way you can think of a hot oven as you read these verses. They are all adulterers. And when we speak of adultery in this way, it's spiritualized adultery uh, representing their worship of false gods. They're going off and worshiping idols. They're like a heated oven. Their, their, Their desire to worship false gods, he says, is like a heated oven. It's like adultery. And he says, like this oven, it's an oven, and the baker there doesn't even have to stir the fire. It says the baker ceases to stir the fire because the fire is so hot with sin, he doesn't even have to keep it going. It just keeps itself going. So he, do, he doesn't have to stop uh, kneading the dough <laughs> because he, he's, he doesn't have to mess with the fire because it's hot on its own. On the day of our king, the princes became sick, verse 5, with the heat of wine. And he stretched out his hand with the mockers. So the kings and the princes have become drunk. And in their drunkenness, they have stretched out and made an alliance with nations that mock them. And he's making deals with people who hate them. For, their, for with their hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. They are 24-hour sinners is what he's saying there. All of them are as hot as an oven. Can you sense the sin in this passage just raging like a fire? And the oven gets so hot that it devours the rulers. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen. And look what it says there at the bottom of verse 7 in chapter 7. And none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. It's a cake that's not properly cooked. It's burned on one side and raw on the other side. There's something wrong here. Verse 9 says, strangers devour Ephraim, or that means Israel. Strangers devour Israel's strength, and he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. What the Lord is saying is the sin in this nation is so great. I wonder if this might be true to our nation. The sin in this nation is so great that it takes away our strength. The sin in this nation is so great, it says gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. We've become weak and old because of the sin. And we don't even realize how weak and old we've become, how feeble we've become. And it's not because of economics and all this stuff. It's because of sin. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. You don't even need witnesses in the courtroom. It's right there before him. And yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor do they seek him for all of this. Now we move into sort of a bird metaphor. Ephraim is like a dove. Silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Can you imagine being out hunting ducks or hunting doves? I guess they hunt doves here in Alney. I hear that. Is it September 1st when that starts every year? And it sounds like cannons going off all around my neighborhood. Imagine, imagine the doves seeing the hunters and then just flying to them and asking to be shot. 
Okay, that's what he's saying. They're like a dove without sense. And they're flying to their enemies, Egypt and to Assyria. And they're going to devour them. But the Lord says, yes, Ephraim and Assyria are hunting you, but I'm also a hunter. Look at what the Lord says he's going to do in verse 12. As they go, I will spread my net over them. And I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. And I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Uh, According to what's out there in public, I'm going to punish them for these wicked sins. Woe to them. There's the judgment of a woe. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. What is God's desire? God's desire is redemption. But they speak lies against me. Kind of goes back to the beginning. I would heal them, but then their iniquity is revealed. Look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart. I want you to underline that verse. As we look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that will become obvious. They don't cry from the heart. They wail upon their beds. It's probably in worship to Baal. They wail upon their beds for grain and wine, and they gash themselves, and they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They come back to me, he's saying, but they don't repent. They come my direction, but they don't get all the way up here in repentance. They are like a treacherous bow. They're like traitors to their God. And their princes shall fall by the sword because of their, the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They will be mocked by their enemies as they fall. Chapter 6 and 7, you say, well, that makes me feel great. Those are tough things to read, aren't they? God's desire is for his people to know him and to understand his love for them. I've called this sermon, Our Love and God's Love. God wants us to know him. God wants us to understand that he loves his people. We've learned in this study of Hosea how God loves his people. How does he love them? With a pursuing love, with a disciplining love. God disciplines his people because he loves his people, that they might come to their senses and turn back to him. But the way we love is not the way God loves. God doesn't love us because we love him. We love God because he loves us. If you'll recall in chapter 5 last week, we looked at the great foolishness of Israel. That even though they had this loving God who was there to bless them and who had made these wonderful promises to them, they continually turned to other things. They had a pattern of not desiring healing from God, but they would turn to other places for healing, and these places could not heal. They turned to false gods, to false worship, and to political alliances. And we study this book of Hosea, and it seems like chapter after chapter after chapter, we ask the question, when are these people going to get it? When are these people going to wake up and turn to the Lord? When will they repent? And I want us to think about repentance. When I say that word, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, someone said, uh, characterized my preaching as hellfire and brimstone one time. And I said, 
If you think I'm hellfire and brimstone, you've never actually heard somebody that's hellfire and brimstone. But if you've heard some, a lot of times that word repent, it's just like getting bashed on the head with that word, isn't it? But you know what repentance is? Here's what repentance is. Has your child ever been in trouble? I mean, I, I, my kids have been in trouble. And it's, it's a strange thing as a father when your children are in trouble. And you've disciplined them, and they're upset. And, and maybe they're upset because they got caught. Maybe they're upset because they feel guilty. But they're crying and they're upset. And you know what they tend to do when they get like that? When, when, they, when, they, when, you, when you have to get on to them, they tend to kind of turn away from you. Maybe they want to go to timeout. Maybe they want to go to the corner. Maybe they go to their room. You know what repentance is? It's that moment where they're crying and you're crying and they just turn back to you and their arms are like this. Like I, You're the only one that I can go to for love. That's what repentance is, is when we agree with God. You know, what I was doing was wrong. And and we think repentance is like this way that God is going to punish us. No, repentance is how we show God that we understand his love, that we can always turn to him for forgiveness. That's beautiful, isn't it? And so repentance is this wonderful thing that God desires from his people. And we keep saying to ourselves as we read Hosea, we keep saying, when are these people going to repent? We want these people to, and then we get to chapter 6, and we think, oh, they're, they're going to do it. Look at, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. Okay, are we getting it here? We got these people, and they want to return to the Lord. Come, let us, re- as a community, they're realizing we need to repent. We need to return to the Lord. And they begin to reason about what is happening to them. Look what they say. We need to return to the Lord, for he has torn us. We need to return that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. The suffering has become too much, hasn't it? And they're describing themselves as torn. They're describing themselves as struck down. And interestingly, they even have the insight to know that this suffering is coming from God's hands. He has torn us. He has struck us down. But he can heal us. He may heal us. Let's turn to him. We're reminded of Job's language in Job chapter 13, verse 15, where he says, Though he slays me, in him will I trust. They're acknowledging God's sovereignty. They're acknowledging God's discipline. He has promised to do this. He's doing this because he loves us. We're his people, after all. He wants us to turn to him. And they seem to be saying the right things. But have you ever felt that you were saying the right things, but you knew that your heart wasn't really going along with the words coming out of your mouth? I think we're there sometimes, aren't we? One of the great problems of you guys and me, of us, One of the great problems of us having such great spiritual knowledge is that we know the right words to say. Now think about that when you're you're sharing Christ with someone who's raw. And they don't know anything. They don't know the lingo of what to say to make it sound like they're saying the right thing. That's a lot more refreshing, isn't it? When someone's like, I just kind of feel like this or I feel like this. And they're not using any of the right words. But then you take some of us. When we know we're out of line, we know we're out of God's will, but we can somehow say the right things to stay out of God's will, 
We can keep doing exactly what we want to do, but we can sound just like we're repenting. We can sound just like we're returning to God. We can make all the spiritual stuff sound so smooth that everyone around us thinks, well, they've got it all together. They, they, they have spiritually arrived. But you know what that's like? It's like the Pharisees. They had the whitewashed tomb on the inside. What was on the inside? Death. Not doing God's will. Way outside of God's will. That's a danger, isn't it? And these people have been so acquainted with the things of God, kind of like we are, that they knew the right words to say. But they have not submitted their heart to the Lord. If you look at verse 2, they say something interesting. Often this verse is considered to be a prophetic reference to the resurrection. Jesus says, uh, as it is written... The Son of Man must suffer, and on the third day, he must rise again. Verse 2 is often used to say, well, that's what Jesus was saying. I think the better uh, verse to use there is the, is the story of Jonah, where Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, and then he, was, then he was out of the whale, spit out of the whale's mouth, that whale being sort of a, uh, the tomb. But this is used as one of those verses because it does say, after three days, he will raise us up. Uh, so it says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. And so if this is a prophetic reference, I think that's absolutely amazing. But what is the actual context here for this book? What the people of God are saying in this book is they're saying God struck us down, God's torn us up, but he can put us back together quickly that we may live before him. It's a wonderful idea and a wonderful ideal. We should all desire to live before God. But here's the reality that God's people don't understand right here. And that is that spiritual formation doesn't happen quickly. They're saying, hey, we can get this fixed in two days. Have you ever, <laughs> we, we, would probably would, we would just know better than to say that, wouldn't we? We know what a spiritual mess we are. We're not going to say, you know what? If I just come back to God and give him two days, he'll just fix me right up. Or if I give him three days, he'll fix me right up. Now, here's the truth. The Lord can save you. If you're lost here today, God can save you like that. He can justify you like that. But the process of you learning to turn to God and not to turn to the world, the process of us learning to, to be Christ-like and becoming Christ-like, that takes a lot longer than two days, doesn't it? You don't grow a mighty oak tree in two days, do you? It takes a long time. And so they think there's a quick fix. They've been running from God. They've been abandoning God, chasing after other gods. They've been chasing after political alliance. They've been worshiping him falsely. Getting back to true repentance is going to take more than three days. But they think there's a quick fix. And that's what we want, isn't it? We do want a quick fix. When something's going wrong in our life, we want to put an end to the suffering. Let's go back so we can be healed. Let's turn to God and be cured. So we can be revived and raised up. So we can live before God. And if we have this ad attitude, we, we miss the blessing of the process. You just don't go from A to Z. God's working it. And he's working it in a certain way and it may take a while. You may have to suffer a while. You may have to deal with the circumstance for a while. God's just not there. So we, we kind of think, well, okay, I'm suffering. I need to go to the Lord so he will just take my suffering away. We just want it to all be over. What should the prayer be? The prayer should be, 
I'm going to go to the Lord because I don't want to suffer through this alone. You know, I want to acknowledge God because I want to walk with him through my suffering and understand what it is he's teaching me about holiness. I want to understand what he's teaching me about what it means to follow him even when times get tough. I've talked to several people lately who are suffering and several people that have gone through very difficult things. And you know what the encouragement is that I've come to? And I don't even know where, I guess I read this in a book. It's funny, you read something in a book and then the Lord will use it, you know, in several days later. And you've had this thought on your mind. But the thought on my mind, I guess I, I, guess I learned this in the Revelation study. That one of the, one of the themes of Revelation is God's people asking the question, how much longer? How much longer, Lord? And he keeps saying, not yet. Not yet, not yet. And we look at that and we say, well, why would God's people ever have to suffer? But this is the reality. If you're, if you're a child of God and you're suffering, maybe you're suffering because of your own actions. Maybe you're suffering because of the actions of another person. But remember this, Jesus Christ suffered. And if the pathway for Jesus Christ was exaltation through suffering, the path of Jesus Christ was exaltation through suffering, why would our path be any different? Verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. What a great prayer. But it's only wonderful if you really want to know the Lord. Because in the next part of the verse, they show that they don't really know him. Even though they know something true about him, they betray their own hearts. They say, let's know the Lord. Let's press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. You know what they say? We can go back to the Lord. We can know the Lord. Because you know what? He comes around just like the dawn. He's as sure as the sun. And he's as sure as the spring rains. I wonder if people ever have that attitude about their spirituality. This, this idea that I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do. And I can always go back and return to God. I can always just go back to the Lord because he's always going to be there for me. And I can always go back to him and ask him for whatever I need. And he's going to give it to me. What are God's people treating him like here? A car wash? An ATM? You put some spiritual words in and then you get dawn, showers, and spring rains? But you don't have a relationship with an ATM machine. (laughs) Some of you are like, well, I do. (laughs) But here's the truth that we need this morning. It's that just because God can get your attention, that doesn't mean that he's got your heart. Just because God can get your attention with a circumstance doesn't mean that he's got your heart. Maybe you find yourself falling back to God when things don't work out. And you're thinking like these people, you know what, I, I, I don't know what, what I've been thinking. I need to go back to the Lord. Because you know God can be counted on because he's never going to change. But you're the one that can't be counted on to be there. And maybe you're looking at me and you're saying, look, you've read these first three verses totally wrong, Brother Chad. Why would you read these verses and have such a negative take on them? Why are you being such a negative Nancy in this sermon? It looks like they want to repent and turn to God. But look at verses 4 through 6, and they help us understand 
and how to interpret those first three verses. What does the Lord say after he hears this prayer? He's heard their prayer in verses 1 through 3. What does he say? What am I going to do with you? That's what he says. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? That's the southern kingdom. Your love, he says, is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Your love is like fog. It's here for a little bit, burns off. Your love is like dew. It's there in the morning for a little bit, and then it's gone. So what does that make us think about their prayer? God knows that that he's got their attention, but he doesn't really have their heart. He knows that they're going to be there for a minute, and then they're going to be gone. Remember what we read in chapter 7, verse 14. They call to me, but they do not cry from their heart. The words are on their lips, but the sentiment is not in their heart. You see, the Lord knows them. He knows these words are not heartfelt. And maybe you've struggled like that in your relationship with God. And this is just one of those hard things about having a sinful heart. We simply don't love God as we ought to love God. We simply can't love God as we ought to love God unless he changes our heart. We don't love others. We don't love God as we ought. We're always fighting something self-serving. We're always fooling ourselves and others about our sincerity. And at the root of that is that we just can't give our hearts fully to the Lord. I mean, that's the answer to it. But it's that holdback that causes all the problems. And so what the Lord does is he lovingly disciplines us. He lovingly uses circumstances to show us you're holding back. You're not fully trusting in me. Your hope is misplaced. Your trust is misplaced. Put it all on me. But what we tend to do is get in a panic mode and we go to the Lord because it seems like all the other security that we thought was going to be there didn't pan out. Y'all know that sense? I thought this was going to work, but this isn't working. So now I'm going to return to the Lord. And usually that happens to us in drastic circumstances. We finally get to the point where we hit our knees and we pray. But here's what I want to argue to you today and and to my own heart, is that we not make the mistake of returning to the Lord over and over again to find security. But when we return to the Lord, the goal should be to find the Lord. And not just to have a relationship with the things that he gives us, but to seek to have a relationship with him through reading our scripture, through praying, through coming to church, and through serving, and doing all these things that we might not just find security when we're scared that we might find a relationship with our creator i remember a man several years ago came to church a few times and he sent me a text message and he said is and it was not a believer he said is christianity a religion or a relationship is christianity a religion or is it a relationship well it seems like these people here have a religion don't they they have their rituals they have their sacrifices they have the things that they go through but they don't have the relationship with the Lord. He's standing there saying, what am I going to do with you guys? What else can, what else can I do? He's, he's, it's almost like the writer is showing us this exasperated feeling of, 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 of them just not even understanding the things that they're saying and how, it, how the way that they're, they're actually feeling is betraying what they're saying. 
And I told him, I said, yes, Christianity is certainly a religion, but it's not like any of the other ones. Because the invitation is not just, oh, you know, most religions are like, you do this, you do these things, you believe these things, so you can go to heaven. So you can have eternal life that's, that's paradise, or whatever it is that these other religions promise. But here's the wonderful thing about the religion of Christianity, and the faith in Jesus Christ, is it's an invitation. Christianity is an invitation for you to have a relationship with God. It is an, this religion is about actually an invitation for you to come and know God. And that is the greatest reward of all. We're not trying to get 70 virgins up in heaven or live forever in nirvana and all these things. The beauty that this faith holds out is that you can have a relationship with God. You can have purpose and meaning and understanding because you can know the one who made it all. And the most beautiful thing about it is that the one who knows it all and made it all, this powerful God that we serve, he loves you individually. He loves his people individually. He cares about the things that you care about. And yes, are the things I care about seemingly that important in the grand scheme of things? No, but they are to my Creator. They are to my Father in Heaven. They are to my Christ. What a beautiful thing it is to be able to know God. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Everything has been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That means you can know God. That means you can know Jesus Christ. And so here's the invitation of Jesus right after He said that. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come and learn me, Jesus said. Come and know me. Let me be your teacher, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus invites us first to be yoked with him. Come be in a relationship with him. Learn him. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, that we learn his commandments, and we do the commandments of God, which are not burdensome, which are love God and love people in the most simple forms. And I wonder if you've accepted the invitation of Christ, if you understand, um, if you've accepted the invitation of Christ, you can do that. But if you haven't accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ, you have to take on his yoke before you can learn him. You have to submit to him in repentance and faith. You have to trust in the work of Jesus Christ for your uh, salvation, will you accept that invitation and know Jesus? And I know many people in this room would say, we have accepted Jesus. We have repented and we've agreed with God. We've believed in the works of Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to love God by keeping his commandments? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 is a command not just to strive to keep the rules if that's all we're thinking of, loving God is just keeping rules, we've missed the point. True obedience to God is motiva- motivated by a love for God that comes from the heart. The problem with these first three verses of chapter 6 is they're not motivated by a love for God that comes from the heart. 
We see the outside. We see the beautiful words. We see an appearance of devotion to God. But what it really is is a a devotion to self. They are trying to preserve themselves. They're trying to preserve the way of life that they have. And it's a pattern of dealing with God that they have. When they get afraid that their life is in danger and everything else doesn't pan out, they go back to God. But he doesn't have their heart. If he had their heart, it would be no problem to do the commands. If God truly has our heart, it's no problem for us to obey him. The problem is he doesn't have our whole heart. And so God's, what what am I going to do with you? Why do you all treat me like a slot machine? Why do you come to me when you get afraid, put a few words in, pull the handle, and want blessings? Why don't you want to know me? And in verse 5 and 6, there's an explanation. It's because they don't return with their hearts. He says, therefore, I've hewn them with the prophets. Uh, Hewing a rock, you take a chisel and you hammer on it. I've hewn them with the prophets. I've slain them with the words of my mouth. The words cut like a sword when, when Jesus begins to speak. And my judgment goes forth like light. The way God has dealt with these people, it's been very clear. It's as clear as sunshine. He says, but I desire steadfast love. I desire faithful love, not their sacrifices. I want their hearts, not their religion. I want them to know me, not just to bring me animals to burn on the altar. And those sacrifices and burnt offerings refer to the system of sacrifices we see in the Old Testament especially in Leviticus, the way that God had commanded them to worship as they came out of Egypt. And this is a common theme. It's a common theme in the Old Testament for the Lord to say that he desires love and mercy rather than the animals. Because anybody can just bring an animal to the altar. Anybody can bring an animal. That wasn't what he was after. God is after your heart, not your lip service. Here's how we could put it in our terms. Some people love to come to church. And I mean, I am one of those guys. I've always loved church. I'm like a church guy. You know, I know all the songs. We we total them up. I've got a spreadsheet with all the songs we know. It's like 460-something songs that our praise team can sing. And I know all of them because I've been in church forever. And I like church. And I know all the words. And I know how to play all the songs. I know how to preach. And I know how to teach. And I know... I know my Bible. A lot of people, they open their Bible and they they would look at that and say, what in the world is this about? But I understand the Bible. I I can explain the Bible. A lot of this stuff gives me comfort. Just being here makes me happy. I just like being at church. Sometimes I come up here when I have nothing else to do just so I can be here. And then I don't have to give kids baths and stuff like that. But, But you can imagine people like me Love to sing, love to play instruments, love to sing in the choir, love to read and collect books, love to work in different areas of the church and hand out food and go on mission trips or whatever else we might do. But isn't it sometimes easy to love the service of God and maybe not love God? Isn't isn't it easy sometimes just to love the truth that we have? Say, we know what's right. We have the answers. We have the truth. But not to love the one who's given us and revealed to us the truth. Like there's an extra step there, isn't there? It's not just coming here and loving this stuff. Old buildings and old books and old songs and all these kinds of things. It's about loving God. And there's some church this morning meeting somewhere in the Philippines or in Africa, and they don't even have walls in their church. But if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's better than having 
the walls and the musics and the guitars and pianos and all that stuff, isn't it? We can go out to the nursing home where people don't have anything. But if those people know God, that's a real church service, isn't it? That's what we're looking for. If God's got their heart, that's better than a good show where he doesn't have their heart, isn't it? God wants our love, not our sacrifice. He wants us to know him. And you know what? If we knew him, it would be no problem to bring the sacrifices. I hope as we move into this building program that we're going to undertake, I hope it has a purpose of, of turning our hearts toward God. You know? That we would love the Lord and that it would be no problem for us to serve him in that way. That we would say, you know what? I wish I could give more to my Lord because I love him. But whenever our religion is just about the sacrifices, the love is not there. God does not have our heart. What does that mean if God doesn't have my heart? What does it mean if God doesn't have your heart? God doesn't have your heart. It means something else does. Because we're, we're, we're hardwired to worship. You are made, a, God made you a worshiper. So if you're not worshiping him, you're worshiping something else. So the question is, what has your heart? What has your heart? Let's do a story. Here's the way Paul Tripp says it. Paul Tripp says, if a certain set of desires rule my heart, I will not want God to be all wise, all loving, a sovereign father who gives me what he knows is best. Instead, I will want God to be a divine waiter who gives me what I have my heart set on. Are we going to God as an all wise, all loving father who knows what's best for us? Or do we go to the Lord as a divine waiter to give us what we want? Imagine if I went to the steakhouse and I had my heart set. Let's say I went, let's say I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I've been there one time. We're going to go to the Big Texan. I've got my heart set on eating the 72-ounce steak and the shrimp cocktail and the potato. Jason, have you done it? You ever tried? He had a friend who did it. I saw some guy When I was there, I saw some guys trying to eat the Big Texan. So you go to this steakhouse, and if you can eat this gigantic steak, uh, it's a 72-ounce steak with, with a bunch of other stuff you have to eat with it, a salad, a baked potato, shrimp cocktail. If you can eat it, they give it to you for free. But if you can't eat it, you have to buy a 72-ounce steak at a steakhouse. I don't think it's that cheap, but it's not as expensive as you think. And they put them up there, and, you know, like NFL football players can do it. So imagine I just got my heart set. Like, I want a 72-ounce steak. That's what I really need. I want that shrimp cocktail. I want that baked potato with butter all over it. I want a salad, and I want some iced tea. I'm driving to Amarillo tonight. Let's say I got up there. I walked in. I want the Big Texan. I'm going to eat this thing tonight. I've been practicing out at the Golden Corral. I'm ready to go. Let's take, let's do this. All right. I want to get, and all, and, and you, yeah, you get a free steak and you get a t-shirt. I think if you, that says I eat the big Texan. So let's say that's what I really wanted. I wanted all y'all to know that I'm like the best steak eater in this whole town. And I'm going to go up there and prove it. And let's say I got up there and a guy takes a look at me. I said, give me the big Texan. Takes a look at me, goes back to the kitchen, comes out with a salad. This is your meal. No, I'm here, buddy, for the Big Texan. You don't need to eat the Big Texan. First off, you won't even be able to do it, and you're not even healthy enough to eat that much meat. So I'm, what you need is a dry salad with a little salt on it and some tomatoes. You need to eat more fiber. That's the, he, so what if this waiter comes? What, how, how do you think I'm going to feel about that waiter? You're the worst waiter ever. Why? Because he's giving me what I need, not what I have my heart set on. But if my heart is set on knowing God, what's my attitude going to be? I want whatever's going to come from his hands because I love him, because I trust him, because I know he's going to give me what's good. 
So do we treat God like, that, like a divine waiter and we want him to give us what we want? Or do we trust him as a loving father who knows what's best? Well, the problem there is that we love us. And we want God to give us what we want. And that's why our love is often like fog or like the dew. Because we're fickle. But here's the great news for a room full of sinners like us. is that even when we're not faithful, God is faithful. We can rejoice today as I've laid out for you the problem in your heart. Is that it goes after and chases other things. If you're one of God's people, you can always know God is chasing you. He is always faithful. And he will use circumstances and things in our life. He will use his word and his Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus Christ. And even though you're sitting here saying, I've got a long way to go. I don't see how God's ever going to do it because I'm still wanting that waiter to give me whatever I want. Here's the promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the fact that when you're sitting here and you hear me say your heart's going after other things, here's what you're also thinking in your own heart. I wish it didn't do that. I wish my heart could go 100% after the Lord. That means God's working in your life because your desire is for the things of God. Your desire is for him to be the king of all of it. And you're not there yet and I'm not there yet, but one day we're going to get there. May not be until we get to heaven. I mean, I know it won't be until till I get to heaven. But what rules your heart? Are you reducing your relationship to God to a menu of human desire? If you are, understand this. God is not going to be reduced to a waiter. And God is not going to be reduced to serving you. But if you will turn and repent and serve him, you can have a relationship with him. With a loving father whose desire is to satisfy your desires with good things so that your strength is renewed like eagles. That's what it says in Psalm 103. God's desire is for his people to know him and to understand his love for them. God's desire is for you to have a heart that will love him. So he makes a promise to us that if we will turn to him, if you will turn to Christ today, if you don't know him, He'll give you a new heart that's capable of loving him in this way. And then we can come out of those shadows of selfishness. We can live in the light as children of God who love the Father with all of our hearts. And even though we will lose battles, and even though it will be difficult, we'll know this war is ultimately won. He will create in me a clean heart. He will renew me like wings of eagles. And one day, One day, on that day of Christ Jesus, he will complete his work. Let's learn God's heart of faithfulness that we might serve him in faithfulness.